We can now open our Bibles and we'll read from Genesis 3. So, of course, it's in connection with Lord's Day 43. Genesis 3, and we'll read the first 12 chapters, or first 12 verses, rather. Genesis 3, starting at verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, As God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. As far as the reading of Scripture, we can now turn to Lord's Day 43. Lord's Day 43, of course, that's on page 557 of your book of praise in the ninth commandment Lord's Day 43 what is required in the ninth commandment I must not give false testimony against anyone twist no one's words not gossip or slander nor condemn or join in condemning anyone rashly and unheard Rather, I must avoid all lying and deceit as the devil's own works under penalty of God's heavy wrath. In court and everywhere else, I must love the truth, speak and confess it honestly, and do what I can to defend and promote my neighbor's honor and reputation. That's for reading of the Catechism. Brothers and sisters, The ninth commandment says that you must not give false testimony 
against your neighbor. Of course, we typically teach this commandment. It's about truth versus lying. But it's important to recognize that as we begin this thinking about this commandment, that it's first about witnesses in a courtroom. If you are in a courtroom, you are not to give false testimony. Now, of course, with the rest of the witness of Scripture, we realize that if I'm not supposed to lie in a courtroom, then I probably shouldn't be lying anywhere else in my life. And that, in fact, don't lie, tell the truth, is actually a pretty simple concept. And I think many of us are here today maybe wondering how Pastor Underwater could possibly make a 30-minute sermon interesting on the subject. Don't lie. All right, let's sing a song and I'll go home. But I think we all know that this is not that simple. This is, in fact, a very difficult command to obey. In fact, of all the commandments, this may be probably the most difficult and the one we most often deal with. Truth and honesty are, are live issues every single time you open your mouth. And in fact, many of us are thinking thoughts right now that are lies. Every time we talk, we risk lying even a little bit. Of course, we talk a lot. Some of us more than others. You know who you are. It's okay, I'm a talker too. Maybe we can have a Talkers Anonymous someday. Those of us who don't know how to keep our mouths shut. But nonetheless, lying is always around the corner in every single instance. And so in fact, this commandment is very, very applicable and ought to be closely studied. Today we're going to do that under this theme, those who know Jesus must not lie, but speak the truth in love. We'll see our temptation to lie, our types of untruth, and speaking the truth in love. Now to start with our first point, the Bible is very clear on the importance and value of truth. Ephesians, for example, Paul talks about the armor of God. What does it have? The belt of truth. 1 John 4, the Spirit of God is called the Spirit of Truth. The Greek word being aletheia. John 16, verse 13 adds to this, and he says, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, what is the spirit of truth going to do in your life? Listen carefully. He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. So obviously, truth is a very big deal to Christianity. Very big. Even those who aren't Christian get that. But what isn't so obvious, I think, to many of us is if truth is such a big deal to God, why is it so little a big deal for you and me? Why are Christians so often so tempted to lie, even if it's these little exaggerations? Why do we misuse the truth so consistently? Why are we so prone to believing bad ideas? And, why do we, and here's another extension of the truth. We all are part of the, the congregation of Owen Sound. How much does this congregation know about your personal life? 
Have you shared your actual struggles with your congregation or your elders or your pastor or someone else? Why are you so tempted to hide what's truly true about you from other people? Those of us who come to church and who hide our true problems are implicitly lying every time we come to church. We cannot live with the idea that the truth would be known by our brothers and sisters. And the truth, ironically, about Christians is that we are always, we want to lie, we want to distort the truth. There's an advantage to lying. There's an advantage to not living in the truth. And this is a big point I want to make this afternoon because it goes right back to Genesis 3. I want to, to shade the truth. And that's what Eve wanted to do in Genesis 3. Let me think about it. In Genesis 2, Adam and Eve are placed in this perfect garden. They're given everything they need and more. They live in perfect harmony and relationship with God in this lush, beautiful, verdant place. The true pastures of the shepherd. There's no death. Everything's good. The only thing they can't do is eat of the tree. But in Genesis 3 verse 1, the Satan comes in the serpent to Eve. Satan asks this very interesting question. You ever study the question? He says, Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Satan's using a truth to prepare the way for a lie. Why? What is he doing? He's asking Eve to question the goodness of God. Is God as good as God says he is? The woman answers with God's truth in verse 2. So far, so good. She answers and she describes exactly what God has commanded. But because the serpent has opened the way for his lie, he now strikes with the lie. You will not surely die. And now here's the lie. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you... And what? What will happen... Satan says, if you eat of the tree, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve, God has been holding out on you. God's got something that he could give to you, but he's not giving it to you. Something's wrong with God. You need to choose your own path. And as usual, Satan's lies are actually mostly truth. The truth being, yeah, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That is true. And Satan's so good at using lies that he fills his lies with a lot of truth so that the lie is masked. But here's the question, and this is what I want to pursue with this sermon. Why? Why does Eve want to believe the lie? What does Eve and Adam get from the lie? First of all, what motivates the devil? Why does the devil want a lie to be true? Well, the devil hates God. 
And the devil wants all everyone else he knows to hate God because he cannot, his evil's ego cannot stand the fact that God is in control and he is not. And the truth is that God is more righteous and more holy, more powerful than the devil. And so the only way the devil can allow his ego to promote the idea that the devil should be higher than God is if the devil lies. The devil hates God. But here's the thing. The devil now wants other people to hate God too. And so he now finds something that will motivate other beings to also hate God. What does he use? Ego. Eve, why do you listen to God? Don't you want to be better than God? Why do you listen to God anyway? You're as smart as God. You can live... You know what? If you... Eve... Don't you want to be God, Eve? And why is Eve so willing to believe the devil's lie? Because she actually wants to be God instead of God. We want every human being, we all want to have the opportunity to, to des- decide reality for ourselves. We hate being told what the world is by another being. And that is the origin of all lies. My ego wants the world to look like this, but the world actually looks like this. And the lie is that you can be a better God than God. It's definitely a lie, because the hard evidence shows that we're worse at being God than God is. Look at the Garden of Eden, which has now disappeared. God put Adam and Eve in such a beautiful place, but without being, but Adam and Eve, when they left Eden, couldn't recreate Eden, could they? No, only God could create Eden. So Adam and Eve's choice was worse. They're not as powerful as God. And is it true that God has holding out on us, that He has bad intentions for us? Is that true? No, but that's also a lie. If God loved us so much that he was willing to have Jesus die for us, then is it true that he's holding out on us, that somehow he wants less than our fullest good? And yet it's so easy for us to believe that we're better than being God than God and that God is holding out on us. Because I want to be the master of all. And so I want to believe a lie. Lies help me serve my ego. So, this brings us to our second point, types of untruth. Because I don't like the truth as God says it to be, I create lies. Now, how do these lies work itself out? Well, the catechism actually gives us a good list of uh, untruths that we engage in. The first one being false testimony. Why would you give false testimony in a court of law? Because in the Bible there are many false witnesses. One is Ahab and Jezebel. We know the story of Nabal's vineyard in 1 Kings 21. In such a case, false witnesses are produced to convict Naboth, and Naboth then dies, and his vineyard goes to the king. Why did, why did the witnesses lie in the courtroom? Well, because the king wanted Naboth's vineyard. 
Ahab's decision to use false witnesses in the courtroom came from a bigger lie, which was that Ahab got to determine who got which land in Israel and not God. Ahab believed he wasn't accountable to God, therefore he did evil, therefore he started to lie up in order to get a vineyard that he wanted in his heart. The lies all sprang from Ahab's belief that God wasn't watching and that he didn't have to listen to God. It's also fascinating to see that lies are at the forefront of Jesus' trial. Jesus is tried before for Pilate. And Jesus is so innocent, so truthful, that, the, that the, the monstrous lies need to be produced to convict him. And even Pilate, the judge, refuses to agree and declares Jesus innocent. And it condemns him to death. If people were right with God, they wouldn't need to lie in a courtroom. If people were willing to humble themselves and obey God, they wouldn't need lies. Lies help us get something that we know God doesn't want to give to us or won't give to us. Which means that all truth is based on whether you love God. If you don't love God, you're going to lie. If you love God, then you're going to love the truth and accept God's truth as he gives it to you. And again, we have twisting no one's words. Well, why do we twist the words of another people? We twist their words because we have an agenda. The original words are inconvenient for us. We need to shade the truth because what the truth is doesn't benefit what we want. Children are famous for this, of course. A child wants to play with a toy, but another kid has the toy. So he says to the other kid, Mommy wants... Mommy said that you have to give the toy to me. But mom's real words to him were, no, you can have the toy after your brother has had a turn. What is the child doing? The child is bending reality to turn it into something he wants. Think of the arrogance embedded in the simple action of the child Twisting his mother's words to his brother. Think about the arrogance in it. The child is acting like God. The child is saying, well, this is the truth, but I want, I'm going to lie to make the truth this because I deserve what I get and I don't care what anyone else has. What I want is way more important than what my brother wants. So I'm going to start lying. Don't we do this so often as adults as well? Think of marriage. We hear what we want to hear and we don't actually listen to what's actually said. Right? You said you would do this and this around the house, but you haven't. Then the other party goes, no, I, that's not actually what I said. I said this. And both are talking past each other. There's arrogance in both. We bend reality to try make the world into what we want it to be. My wife didn't do this and this, and I wish she could because I like coming home and doing nothing. Reality isn't what I want, so I'm going to bend it. The world ought to serve me. And darn it, I'm going to make the world serve me. Next is gossip or slander. Slander is to tell someone a false or mostly false story about someone else. Gossip is, we would define it usually as telling someone true things about another person 
but in, things that harm them, things that people shouldn't know. It's the misuse of truth in such a way that it hurts other people, either carelessly or purposefully. And again, gossip and slander are built on the same principle that we find in the Garden of Eden. What I need and what I want are more important than the well-being of the person I'm talking about. We typically gossip in order to feel self-righteous or to make ourselves feel better. Do you hear that so-and-so's child got suspended from school? Implication, my children and grandchildren are way better than that person's. Look at how righteous I am. Or, did you hear that so-and-so is struggling with an alcohol or pornography addiction? Oh, that poor family. Implication, look at how much better my family is than their family. I once heard of a pastor of a certain Reformed church, which his church had a congregational audit done. People came and did surveys in the congregation and asked people what the biggest issues in the church were. Two issues were identified in the survey. The second largest issue in that church that everyone talked about was gossip. Gossip was a huge problem in that church. No one in the church could be trusted with sensitive issues or sins. People couldn't keep their mouths shut, so anything you shared, everyone heard about it. Now you might say, well, why is that so bad? Well, if you can't trust anybody with the things that really matter to you, and if they're going to use the information you share with them in order to benefit themselves as the knower, like, as being somebody who knows everything, or they're going to selfishly use your life to their advantage in speech, then that means that no one in the church is ever going to share struggles that they actually have. And everyone's going to come to church and they're going to live a lie. Because they're going to have to hide where they're truly at. Which means nobody here will ever be able to help anybody else because everyone will be left in their own little island. Here's the problem. The problem is you can't fight your sin on your own. Nobody can. If you think you can, you're losing. You need God and you need other people in this church to defeat sin. That's the whole principle of life renewal. So gossip is actually a silent, deadly killer. It will slowly hollow out the congregation until nobody's growing because nobody's helping each other. We see that misuse of the truth has huge consequences. Now, of course, there's, some people would say, well, actually, shouldn't everyone know everyone else's problems? Shouldn't I be honest with everyone about my problems? Yes, but usually first we have to be, we have to trust people. And if we don't, if gossip is the norm in a congregation, there will be no trust. Nobody's going to use the truth you share for your good. It's all going to be used for their good. Ideally, you would want everyone to know your stuff and be able to trust them with your stuff. And so sometimes churches make it impossible for people to actually be honest. Because the church has what I would call a congregational sin. 
And the elders come to the elder meeting and they wonder why nobody's growing and the pastor wonders why everything's going wrong. And deeply under the surface, there's a problem like gossip that prevents anyone from healing. And to be frank, the gospel treats, the Bible treats gospel, gossip as a discipline issue. People who gossip, according to Romans 1 verse 29, are ungodly. Which means that if someone gossips and is warned not to gossip, but then continues, that person should be disciplined and excommunicated if they don't change. I wonder if we should do it at least once to show us how the gravity of the issue. And slander is even worse. So I don't like a person, so I slander them. I say something false about them behind their back. I've seen this a number of times in our churches. Maybe there will be uh, two businesses competing in the, in the community, and then one business kind of repeats stories about the other business and then embellishes them, and then pretty soon there's a slanderous accusation going around. This business isn't honest. They don't do good work. It happens. It's amazing how it happens. And God hates it. Anyway, I'm, I'm not sure much, I need to say much more about that. I think we can all agree on how bad that is. And yet, yet, here's the thing. This is why this sermon is needed. And yet, it's so easy to do. And it's so easy to think that there's no consequences for it. But there is. And finally, we have condemning or joining in condemning someone rashly and unheard. We love to condemn other people because it helps us feel better about our own sin. How often do we look at someone's parenting at church or elsewhere? We see the parents do something and we say, oh, Those parents are terrible. I would never do that. And that's the assumption, right? The judgment. That person is a bad Christian because blah, blah, blah. What's the problem? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 1, he talks about how much God hates rash judgment. Jesus says, you know, judge or you too will be judged. And listen, it's not about not, we, we need to make judgments about other people. Jesus is not saying you don't make a judgment about another. When we make it, someone an elder, we make a judgment about that person, right? Judgment is part of the Christian life. But, listen, in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So it's a question of how do you judge? Do you judge harshly? Could you stand up, in other words, under the judgment you levy towards other people? The question is not, do I make a judgment? The question is, am I charitable in my judgments? And Jesus knows that the standard human problem is that we hold other people to a standard about twice as high as we hold ourselves. And Jesus says, reverse it. Hold them to a standard twice as charitable than the one you hold yourself. Give them twice as much grace as you give yourself. Then you might be accurate with your judgments. But why do we judge people harshly? Well, it's all about what I want in life. What I actually, listen, to, listen carefully, what I want in my life is to not do the hard work of fighting my sin. That's what most of us actually want. Because Fighting sin is really hard. 
If I ever, those of us who have ever had a problem with pornography will know this. How long does it take to finally clean yourself up from pornography? It can take years. And the truth is, we don't want to do it, do we? And by judging another person harshly, wow, they're a terrible sinner. They're, we end up making ourselves proud. I'm not like that, so I'm good. And if I'm good, then I don't have to fight my sin, do I? I've got it all figured out. You know what? Where I'm at right now, I'm, I'm, I'm doing fine. Which is a lie. Which is why condemning other people harshly is a form of lying. The lie is that I'm better. Because you're not. And Jesus hates this sort of thinking. It's the opposite of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which is that Jesus dies in order to give you grace even though you're still a sinner. The gospel teaches us that all of us are sinners in need of grace in every single way. And all of us are equally awful or dirty before God. Dirty rags. And so the correct response to coming to church is, Oh, I'm an awful sinner. Lord, I'm terrible. I need grace desperately. And the true Christian goes to a brother who sins and offers his help and his prayer and his love. Oh, brother, you fell. How can I come and help you and lift you up? Because next time it might be me and I need you to lift me up when I sin next time. And if a Christian comes to church and instead he sees someone sin and his, his response is, oh, they're awful. That means he doesn't, in that moment, he has forgotten Jesus. You have forgotten how much Jesus overlooks in order to give you grace. You have forgotten how low, how sinful, how gross you appear as a sinny, dirty rag to God. You think you're better than another person. Which may be the, one of the greatest sins of all, isn't it? Besides being a lie. You know, there's another aspect of this too. Often we go outside the church and we meet people. Maybe they're from another church. They're from a different type of Christianity that we're used to. And there's this automatic Canadian Reformed reflux of they're Baptist. They must be a lesser Christian than I am. And there's often, that's our first starting point with people. And there's often kind of humiliating to get to know the person and discover that even though they're Baptist and their church does things we don't really agree with, they've grown more in Christ than you and I. And their way, the walk of life is actually kind of, you know, wow. And it comes from this. You see, if you think that sitting in the right pew is somehow going to help you be a better Christian than that person over there. It, in itself, that means nothing. The question is whether you come here and listen, of course. But in that second, you've said that being Canadian Reformed gives you a greater right to the kingdom of Jesus. That is a lie. Because you are saved in this church because Jesus' blood, not because of the pew you sit in. It's not to... That's not to put aside the very real truth that some churches teach the truth and are faithful, more faithful than others. That's true. 
But that doesn't give you the right to look down on other people because you sit in the right pew. Maybe they need, what's actually needed is for you to humbly come to them in faith and treat them with respect and love and maybe they'll be like, maybe I should become Canadian Reformed too. But if you've chosen to believe in a lie because you've decided that being Canadian Reformed means you don't have to grow in your faith. I sit in the right pew, I'm good. No, you're not. Again, you guys will say, well, aren't you being kind of harsh, Pastor Underwood? Well, listen, we're in a Canadian Reformed church. We deal with our sins. That's what we do here. And then we go to Jesus Christ because when you recognize you're a sinner, that's when you need Jesus. I'm not here to tell you that other people are bad. I'm here to help you see how much you need Jesus. Because if you don't recognize your need for Jesus, there's going to be a day when I fail to recognize my need for Jesus and you aren't there to help me. And the first step onto identifying your sin is to stop lying. And again, the catechism finishes our list and it says, I must avoid all lying and deceit as the devil's own works under penalty of God's heavy wrath. No, the right way, the true way is to love truth and to love God. We need to love God so much that we're willing to sacrifice our lives in order to remain in his love. Even though sacrificing our lives is extremely painful. A lot of us don't realize it, but we're, we protect ourselves with lies. And to give up our lives means entering an area of vulnerability, entering an area of risk. But you have to recognize that God is better than your lies. You can face something difficult about yourself because God is going to fill you with himself. He is the great shepherd. He's the only one where there's verdant lands. Your lies can't give you verdant pastures and still waters, can they? Now, one sidetrack here. In the Bible, there are situations where um, people did not speak the truth and yet were rewarded by him, by God. Why? In Exodus 1, there were two Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Puah. The king of Egypt commands all Hebrew boys to be killed. But the Hebrew midwives refuse to tell the Egyptian authorities where the new babies are being born. When asked about it, they lie about their actions to the Pharaoh. They, they, they make up some story about Hebrew women are too strong. They, they give birth before the midwives get there. And, God, and then we read, God is happy with them. They lied, but God was happy. Why? Well, later on in Joshua 2, we read again about Rahab. Rahab lies to the authorities of the city of Jericho about the spies in her house. She's certainly not telling the truth, although there's some sort of shading of the truth going on. How can people be rewarded for lying? Well, the thing is that truth in itself is not. Truth cannot be fully understood without attaching truth to God. Truth is relational between us and God. That means that truth always is accompanied with love. 
Someone once said to me, or years ago, he said, if you have truth but not love, you have neither. If you have love but not truth, you have neither. And so there are times when loving someone and protecting them enable, puts us in a situation where the truth has a bit of a limit. This is extremely rare, first of all. But it does happen that in order to protect someone's life, we, with great pain and difficulty and, and personal struggle, we say, I'm not going to tell the authorities about that person. Resistance fighters who were captured by the Germans and they were put in jail and they were interrogated, they weren't going to tell the, the German authorities about all their friends. They hid the truth. That happens. The Dutch lied about hiding Jews in World War II. That is possible. And it's because we need to recognize that truth is tied to our relationship with God and to love and how much we care for people. It's never stand alone without God. There's more I could say about the subject, but the point is that we don't obey the ninth commandment in isolation of the others. You don't want to be party to murder with your words. Now, to finish with this, Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 29, do not let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to your needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Always remember that the first lie was introduced by the devil because he hated God. The proper way is to love God. And because we love God, we love the truth about ourselves and Him. And in Jesus, we particularly have freedom from lying in two ways. Number one, we have the freedom to admit that we're sinners. So we have no trouble admitting our sin. Because we know that in Jesus Christ, we're forgiven from whatever our sin is. I don't have to lie to people about who I am. And secondly, in Jesus, we have access to him as the truth. The truth comes as a person. And he lives the truth and speaks the truth in everything that he does. He is the pure representation of the truth in a world of lies. And in those two things, we can live in truth with God, enabling us to give us the ability. And through it all, we have Jesus Christ, who the greatest truth being that I am the truth and I'm going to die to make the truth alive in you through my love. This is the core of what truth is. So we don't just speak the truth, we love truth. We will spend an eternity living truth. Amen.